live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. No love lost. Nancy Pelosi ripping up President Trump's State of the Union speech moments after he finishes. Quarantined crews, passengers trapped after multiple coronavirus cases found on board. And Disney's Big Plus, more than 28 million people sign up for their streamed content. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. once again to First Move, where we have a rip-roaring show coming up for you today. Firstly, global markets are on, one might say, a Nancy Pelosi-style tear here. Okay, I'll stop now. Look, take a look at uh, Sea of Green for uh, Global Equities, recovering some of their recent losses. U.S. futures right now higher by one percentage pre-market. Nasdaq set to open at a fresh record. Europe also higher up by around one percent across the board here. Chinese stocks also clawing back some of Monday's eight percent drop. The Shanghai composite rising some one point two five percent today. Sentiment, I think, being helped here by reports of a coronavirus vaccine, perhaps. We'll discuss the state of the outbreak momentarily. But for now, let's discuss the state of politics in Washington, D.C., the bitterness between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump on display as the U.S. president gave his last State of the Union address before the November election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi breaking decades of congregational tradition by introducing him as the president of the United States with none of the usual fanfare. Just listen to how the then impeached President Bill Clinton was introduced back in 1999 and then compare and contrast with last night's introduction. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Members of Congress, the President of the United States. The president then seemingly declining to shake hands with the House Speaker before his remarks. And then after the address, Pelosi ripped apart a copy of the speech right behind his back. The president never mentioning, of course, the word impeachment in his address. All this before today's Senate vote in the impeachment trial. Joe Johns is live at the White House for more. Joe, we can talk about the theatre of last night and the stance that the two in particular took here. But I also want to talk about the content of the speech here and President Trump laying the path here to the 2020 elections. Well, that's what's very interesting. Typically, during an election year, the State of the Union address is an opportunity during prime time for the President of the United States to address the entire country, both Democrats and Republicans and uh, everyone in between. And it's also an opportunity for the President to lay out what he has done and to talk about his agenda for the future going into November, which, of course, is the election in the United States. But this speech by President Trump was clearly a uh, political device. He was reaching out, as he often does, to his base, and he was unapologetic to his critics. So that's one of the things that made it very different also. Uh, very important to say that this country is deeply divided, and you could see it right there in the symbolism of the relationship between the Speaker of the House, the President of the United States, uh, the failure to shake hands, the tearing up of the speech. Uh, <clears throat> all of these things play into today, 
with the impeachment trial coming to its clear and apparent ending, an ending that we knew it would come to over the last weeks and months, that being uh, the acquittal of the president, which uh, almost certainly he will claim to be an exoneration uh, of his uh, alleged wrongdoing. Uh, in the Ukraine affair. So a long way to go to November. Uh, this country is deeply divided and polarized, and it clearly signals at least the potential for a very ugly election uh, and the run-up to it. Back to you, Julia. Absolutely. And first things first, that expected acquittal in the Senate vote later. Joe Johns, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And you can tune in to CNN later on today for our ongoing coverage of that impeachment trial, too. Plenty more to discuss on that point, too. And we will do that later on in the show. But for now, let me bring you up to speed on our other top story today. The coronavirus outbreak has hit Hong Kong and Japan. Cruise ships quarantined at sea outside Tokyo and Hong Kong. Worldwide, uh, the death toll now has risen to almost 500, with more than 24,000 cases reported. David Culver is in Beijing and has been working tirelessly to keep us updated with uh, what's happening there. David, just talk to us, because I heard you speaking earlier on our programming, more and more cities now coming under lockdown and these very intense attempts right. by Beijing and the central government here to shore up the medical response response here for, for those affected. No question, Julia. And as the numbers of those infect, infected and impacted and even the death toll continues to rise, so too the number of folks who are included in these lockdown zones. As you mentioned, more and more cities are part of this lockdown. It's a widening perimeter that's continuing to expand with each passing day. And we're also seeing increased effort to boost the capacity of healthcare here. By that, I mean we've seen two new hospitals coming on board. One was finished construction-wise today. It's expected to open to patients tomorrow. The other opened earlier this week on Monday. That held about 1,000, the other one 1,600, but that's not enough. They're now looking to open three field hospitals. So they're essentially turning sports stadiums and exhibition halls into these hospital settings. But when you look at it, I mean, they're just essentially rolling out cot after cot, really tight quarters. It shows, in some sense, a bit of a desperate situation that they're trying to accommodate as many infected patients as possible. Meantime, you mentioned Hong Kong and neighboring territory there. It seems that healthcare workers are continuing on with their strike. This is the third day of their strike. Some 4,600, according to the union, went on strike. And that includes some 300 doctors and then the rest being nurses. So it's a significant impact for those who are trying to treat the epidemic in Hong Kong. And it seems like Chief Executive Carrie Lam was hoping to at least ease some of the concerns by suggesting that they're moving forward with a policy that would essentially require a quarantine for folks who come from mainland China. So if I were to go over to mainland China, it would be 14 days uh, to Hong Kong for, for in quarantine that you would have to wait out. But they didn't really specify where that quarantine would take place. There's some details still missing there, and it seems like healthcare workers, Julia, are not satisfied with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pressure that, that Carrie Lam here is, is coming under to prevent any further travelers from the mainland here. But also what we've seen as well, that the last passenger flight from China to the UK as well, with, with nationals, the United States as well, bringing their nationals home. Just explain to us how all of this is being portrayed 
in China here, but particularly by the media. What are they saying about the sort of international response here too still? It is very interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, for the first time today, we did notice that some of our coverage was blacked out here. The censorship, but we've seen that in the past with other stories that's considered sensitive, including talking about you know, the protests, for example, in Hong Kong. However, we are also seeing that there is frustration with the Chinese government and other governments, particularly with the U.S. I mean, earlier this week, they were essentially lashing out at the U.S. And their big concern was that they suggested these evacuation flights, for example, are requiring usage of Wuhan's airport. Well, why do they need that airport capacity? They say they need to bring in badly needed medical supplies, which we can attest to. We've spoken to the doctors and nurses on the front lines who say there is a dire need. And they felt like the first flight from the U.S., was essentially taking up space. It didn't bring in any supplies, whereas you had Japan and South Korea and their early flights and follow-up flights brought in a lot of medical supplies. It was badly needed, and it met some of those demands. The U.S. had a shift, it appears, according to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. They did move forward uh, with bringing in supplies on the two most recent flights that took off, and it's likely they'll continue that. It's kind of an exchange of goodwill, in a sense, uh, with the flights that are expected, Julia, to take off tomorrow with more Americans leaving. David Culver there in Beijing. Thank you for being there. Great job. All right, let's uh, continue with this story because in Japan, thousands of people are quarantined at sea outside the port of Yokohama. Ten passengers, in fact, on that cruise ship testing positive for coronavirus. Carrie and Joji has the full report. More than 3,700 passengers and crew members aboard a luxury ship will remain at sea, unable to dock here in the port of Yokohama for at least another two weeks, as officials worry about contagion aboard the ship. Earlier this morning, 10 people who tested positive for the Wuhan coronavirus were led off one by one. They were covered in blankets and they were taken to hospitals nearby. We're still waiting to hear if some of the other tests have come back. It's taking a few hours before the results come in. And there are questions being asked about why all the other people on board are not being tested more thoroughly. There's growing frustration in Japan about whether the government is doing enough. I spoke to one doctor who remembers a flu epidemic here in Japan a couple of years back. And people with the slightest of symptoms would rush to hospital. And that seems to have worsened the problem. This time, there's still no vaccine and there's already a run on masks. CNN has communicated with the passenger on board. That passenger said it's peaceful. There's food and they're being asked to remain in their cabins. The ship is expected to dock briefly on Thursday morning here in Yokohama to refuel and load supplies. But the 3,700 plus passengers will remain on board quarantined for at least another two weeks. From Yokohama, I'm Kaori Joji for CNN. And more and more companies now being forced to respond about the potential impact of the coronavirus outbreak. Disney among them. They said that profits at their Chinese parks could take a $280 million hit this quarter. Some have been shut indefinitely because of the coronavirus outbreak. But recent protests in Hong Kong have also hit takings as well. It followed a pretty strong quarter, though, with revenues up some 36%. Frank Pelota joins us now on this story. Frank, uh, as I mentioned there, the coronavirus impact, the Hong Kong protests as well, and that impact taking some of the sparkle out of what seemed to be a pretty solid quarter here. Talk us through the numbers. 
So yesterday, the big highlight was the amount of subscribers that Disney Plus really brought in. Everything else was pretty much a win across the board. Its revenue was uh, beat expectations. Its studio had a big year, more than 100% growth from the year prior. Same thing with its direct-to-consumer unit, which is kind of not fair because it really didn't have a direct-to-consumer unit last year. But the big, big number that everyone was talking about was 28.6. That is how many subscribers Disney Plus brought in. It also brought in a lot of growth to the other streaming services in the Disney bundle, so-called Disney bundle, which is ESPN Plus and Hulu Plus, which saw some growth as well. Yeah, I mean, the big question I think that investors have been asking as Disney has launched here, particularly at a low relative price point, is to what extent do they challenge Netflix? And it took, what, Netflix a decade to get 68 million subscribers, and, and Disney's halfway there already. It's, um, it's pretty astonishing. However, mm -hmm. that comes at a cost. Yes. So you make a really good point. You know, Netflix is the leader of all of streaming. And this is something that is going to cost everybody billions of dollars. It doesn't matter if our parent company, Warner Media and HBO Max, or if it's NBC Universal's Peacock or Quibi or even Netflix itself. Streaming costs money. But these, these companies are making a bet that this is the future of the business. Now, for Disney, they have projected that they're going to have 60 to 90 million subscribers in by 2025. So look at it this way. They're already halfway there or somewhat halfway there. It's a good start, but in streaming, just like life, it's not about how you start, it's how you finish. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just wonder whether they're actually being a bit conservative there on how long it takes them to get to those subscribers and whether they're perhaps looking at it and going, when you pull in the bundle, the likes of Hulu and ESPN Plus, perhaps they're thinking here, actually, we need to raise the price. I mean, I feel like eventually what we're going, they, they all kind of start at a low price point. But look at something like Netflix. Netflix is the template. Netflix has raised their prices over years, and their subscriber base has taken somewhat of a hit every time they kind of done that. Will Disney do that? Will Apple, which is even cheaper than Disney, will uh, you know HBO Max and Peacock down the line? I would assume maybe, but we don't know that yet. But at this price point, in, in terms of becoming profitable, that price needs to go up as much as the growth globally needs to go up as well. But again, Disney's off to a good start. If it was under 20 million, which is where Wall Street was kind of expecting it, the stock would be in the tank this morning. Yeah. Frank Pelota, great job. Thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Still incomplete Iowa caucus results show Pete Buttigieg taking a slim lead over Bernie Sanders, followed by Elizabeth Warren and then Joe Biden. The vote tallies are a major boost for the former mayor, but only 71% of the precincts have reported so far. It's actually still not clear who won the Iowa caucuses. It's perhaps more clear who lost. 31 people have been killed in two avalanches in eastern Turkey, according to the Turkish Disaster and Emergency Management Authority. Rescue workers were among the dead. They were helping those caught in the first avalanche. The wife of the Prime Minister of Lethoso has been charged with murdering her husband's former wife. Messiah Thebane is accused of killing Lipo Lelo Thebane, who was shot dead in 2017. Prime Minister Thomas Thebane has announced he will resign but hasn't yet stepped down. A bodyguard protecting the former British Prime Minister David Cameron is under investigation amid reports that he left a loaded handgun in a toilet on board a commercial flight from New York to London. It's alleged Mr Cameron's passport was also left behind. 
passenger discovered the gun and alerted the crew. Wow. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, Tesla's turbo-powered stock price sends Wall Street on a wild ride. But is it good for the long haul? Plus, aside from the made-for-TV moments in the State of the Union, what's the U.S. economy really telling us right now? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange. We are counting down to the market open this morning, and it's expected to be a strong one. Stocks indicating they could open, what, some 1% higher. The Nasdaq also set to hit fresh records. All the major averages, in fact, having their strongest day of trading in months in Tuesday's session. Tech stocks, the Nasdaq rose more than 2%, in fact. We're seeing a calming, I think, of sentiment with regard to the coronavirus, also perhaps supported by rumors of a potential vaccine. Too. We also had blockbuster private sector job numbers today, which I think is helping non-farm payrolls on Friday coming up as well. Take a look at the oil markets as well. This is an important one. Also seeing that moving higher today amid some speculation that perhaps OPEC could hint that a production cut is coming. BP one to watch. They said the growth in oil demand could plunge some 40% this year as the coronavirus pressures global economies. Oil did in fact fall into a fresh bear market earlier this week. Coronavirus clearly still a highly uncertain factor here. But there's other things to discuss. If you ever needed evidence that Tesla is on a tear, then this is it. Year to date, its stock price up some 117%. What a ripper. Dan Ives is managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. The stock, not Dan, the ripper. Talk to me about what's going on in this stock. It's parabolic, and I think there's really three reasons. I mean, one, front and center is China. China's the fuel in the engine for Tesla. That really changes, this dynamic change. That could be 150,000 units over the next year, and I think that's definitely put fuel in the bull engine. Two is profitability. The P word's key. Now the trajectory, 25, 30 hours of long-term earnings potential. And three, I mean, the straw that broke the camel's back for the bears is really some of this Panasonic news. You put it all together, inflection EV demand, it's a historic short covering, but real buying too. I think for some people and those that are very much focused on Tesla will understand the Panasonic news. What was it specifically about that that you think that was the, the sort of final thrust here that saw the, saw the share price rise? That was the missing piece in the puzzle, yeah. that strategic partnership. The fact that that was so bullish in terms of the conference call and the profitability, now you could trajectory it out. It looks like upside for numbers, and it really looks at this point EV demand starting to inflect, and that's why Tesla, it just comes down to many investors missed Amazon e-commerce, Netflix streaming, Apple thought smartphones will never be successful. They don't want to miss Tesla on this EV demand train. You're making some really bold comparisons there. Are you comfortable with that? Is this for you that turning point? Perhaps in terms of valuation, I think, too, where we go... We don't make the comparison with Tesla and other automakers anymore in terms of valuation as well. We go, actually, we are looking at a broader company here, a technology company, perhaps, rather than anything else. Yeah, it's a great point, as always, because I think what you hit on is it's not an automotive company. I think that's the first line in the sand. And in terms of, it's a fork in the road, because ultimately, this year, they're going to be that parabolic growth where you could see 
$500 billion trillion dollars in the next 10 years or hit a speed bump, it becomes another soap opera for Tesla. I don't see that happening. This feels real. Someone that's followed Tesla for many years, it feels like it's a real EV inflection, especially with China. Is 500,000 units a year feasible? I mean, you talked about the 150,000 in China in particular. I'll weave in coronavirus here and the potential impact of factory shutdowns, of worker resource restrictions. Can you quantify the risk, perhaps, and does that matter, particularly given we're talking about a parabolic, which always makes me nervous, rise sure. in a share price? Yeah, I mean, even if you were at Corona, you know, a lot of nervousness, even you see the, some of the news this morning, I mean, you're talking maybe 1% to 2% of units that can maybe shift out. When you look at capacity, not just in the U.S. or Fremont Giga, Shanghai, that's the key. Giga 3 is the linchpin from a capacity perspective. Now in Europe and Berlin, they'll build that out as well. Now, ultimately, they'll have capacity for really a million units if you look out 18, 24 months. So it's really not going to restrict them. It comes down to demand. And that's why right now, global EV demand is starting to inflect. 2.5% of all automotive. Tesla's the main play. That's why you're seeing the bears go into hibernation mode. Well, see, so you've gone neutral looking at the share price today. I think Canaccord Genuity as well said, look, we're actually looking at the valuations here and going, OK, this has gone a long way in a short space of time as well. I think the stock price is down uh, just over 6% today, but in light of the rally that we've seen, that's nothing. Is it too much too soon? Because your max case here, your bull case here is $1,000. But again, you know, when I look at that share price, I kind of think Bitcoin. And I think that massive squeeze that we saw in 2018 with Volkswagen sure. and Porsche, that something about this feels squeezy. And we know the short interest in this was very high. It's a Bitcoin-like sort of move feels frothy, but I do think this is not a bubble. In other words, I just want to right. separate them. The fundamentals now, are there. Now, do I think the stock has maybe gotten ahead of itself, which is our view because of some of the good news? Yeah, but as an investor right now, you look at this and there's going to be opportunities, but I think longer term, there's an inflection point, but that's why as analysts, we're trying to quantify base, best case. We do not view it as a bubble. That's why I view $1,000 bull case, but there's going to be a lot of opportunities here in terms of the volatility where you can own the stock. You know, what I think we need to see here is institutional investors, because when you're looking at this kind of valuation for a technology company, which is what this valuation represents, you start looking at its market cap and saying it should be in the S&P 500. And that brings institutional money in. To what extent, if any, are you speaking to institutional investors here that are going, hang on a second, do we need to be involved in this? We're involved in this. Do we need to take profit? I've talked to more institutional investors, deep dive on Tesla in the last two weeks, in the last six to nine months. Because now it becomes a real institutional story. Right. Those that think there's all retail buying, those are the same that thought Mahomes was not going to be a good quarterback. So to me, it just comes down to this is real. It's an inflection. Okay, stock's eye of the beholder, but it, there's definitely a change in terms of the story. Very quickly, if it comes down, do you buy more? You buy more. More. And it's, well, I think especially if this thing starts to sell off, you know, below 700, that's where you get aggressive. Dan Ives, great to have you with Thanks. us. Thank you so much for Wedbush Securities there. We are counting down to a market open. As I've mentioned, a stronger open expected for U.S. markets following the green that we saw in Europe and in the Asia session as well. Plenty more to come. We're going to be talking a state of the union and more later on in the show. Stay with us. The market open is next.
I'm Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange, and that was the opening bell. And as expected, we have a higher open for U.S. stocks this Wednesday morning. The Nasdaq, yes, that is hitting fresh record highs, I believe. The Dow also adding to Tuesday's 1.4% gains. Tuesday was the Dow's best day in terms of performance since June of last year, I believe. There are also reports that scientists are making progress on a coronavirus vaccine helping sentiment. But I think stabilization, at least outside of China, um, the appearance of it at least is also perhaps filtering into sentiment here too. But also, let's not forget the fundamentals. New numbers showing strong private sector jobs growth last month. The U.S. employers adding almost 300,000 jobs. That, in fact, is the best monthly gain in more than four years. An interesting prelude ahead of non-farm payrolls on Friday. All right, let's take a look at our global movers today. Tesla, as we've been discussing, shares pulling back a touch here from their electrifying rally. Nice. The stock is uh, lower after rising some 13% to a new record high on Tuesdays. Tesla's value has uh, more than doubled since the start of the year. In fact, Elon Musk's net worth has risen by $16 billion since January, losing a little bit today, as you can see, 9%, little relative to the rally that we've seen. Tesla's rivals, Ford and GM, also out with Q4 results. Ford falling after reporting weaker-than-expected profits. It's also lowered its 2020 outlook here. Tell of two halves, though GM higher. Its earnings beat expectations, but sales were softer than expected. Disney also in focus. The shares higher in the session. The entertainment giant reported stronger-than-expected profits and revenues. The streaming service, though, Disney Plus, taking much of the attention. They now have more than 28 million subscribers gathered since that November launch. The theme park profits could drop, however, by almost $300 million this quarter. That was the warning indeed coming because of the coronavirus and the anti-government protests in Hong Kong. Let's talk all this through. Uh, Tuna Romobi is the media and entertainment analyst for CFRA Research, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Julia. All right, let's talk coronavirus and the Hong Kong impact first, and then we'll talk more detail uh, in the numbers here. Do you think they're being conservative in their estimates here for the potential impact? It's, it's theme parks, but it's also cinemas and the like too, surely. Well, you know, so the guidance they provided assumes that the parks will be closed for about two months, yes. the Hong Kong and then Shanghai Disneyland. And what they said is that the impact of those numbers is going to be about, you know, about 170 million, give or take, an operating income for the international parks. Yes. So we knew there was going to be some disruption. Uh, what we weren't sure was how long this was going to last or if this is going to have a continuing impact. And to be fair, most of the companies that are being impacted by this coronavirus have really said that they really, um, it's really hard to get a good grip on how much impact ultimately or how long this could last. Yeah, I mean, it's tough in terms of cost closures length of time here ultimately but relative to the revenue capabilities of, of this company it's kind of a fraction i agree i think investors right now are really focused on the good news in the yes. parks and a lot of the good news is coming from the domestic theme parks where they just opened uh, you know both two star wars attractions in florida as well as in california and we're starting to see the impact uh, of those uh, attractions on attendance so really the story of the parks now is really a tale of two uh, you know uh, parks if you will the domestic really yes. doing a lot of the heavy lifting versus the international with the concerns about the coronavirus we have to talk about disney plus the streaming the expectations here were for around 20 million subscribers they blew those expectations out of the of the park here 28 million subscribers that's a strong number oh julia i gotta tell you it, those numbers uh, were 
way above even the most optimistic analyst expectations. We had them coming in uh, somewhere about 24, 25 million. And for them to say that in January alone, they added another 2 million to get to 28.6 as of Monday. Yes. I mean, that's really uh, off to a roaring start. And I really believe that this really is a sign of good things to come. 60 to 90 million is their prediction for 2025. I mean, I got to tell you, Julia, 60 to 90 million investors don't even remember that that number is a global number. Yes. And within that, they said about a third of that is coming from the U.S. So when you think that the U.S. alone has done 28.5 million in just literally uh, two months and change, and they had to set a five-year projection, I think you can see how conservative those numbers are with international launch still to come. So some of the obvious pushback here, the cost. Mm -hmm. This growth came at a huge price. And even when you bring in the Hulu bundle, the ESPN bundle, I mean, that that content streaming segment lost, what, just shy of $700 million. The price, $7 a month. They need to raise prices here, or we're not worried about that yet. I think we're not worried about that yet. The price of $6.99 that they came in, I think it seems to be just the right sweet spot. And remember, you can get Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu in a bundled $12.99 subscription. Our worry going into this quarter was that the, perhaps the bundling or, or the promotions are going to hurt the pricing power, yes. but we saw ARPU for Disney Plus coming in even very respectable, you know, uh, close to $5. And then ESPN Plus, that's the unspoken halo impact of Disney Plus. ESPN Plus uh, is getting a huge benefit from being bundled together, almost doubling their subscriber numbers. And Hulu benefited here as well. And Hulu as well. So there's a halo impact all along. Compare and contrast. Netflix, because I was making the point earlier on the show, it took a decade for Netflix to gather, what, 69 million subscribers. Comparables, whether it's content spending, whether it's library, whether it's cost, whether it's subscriber ads here, thoughts? Well, I gotta say, uh, so much has been made of Netflix having the first mover advantage, but the launch of Disney Plus really is unprecedented. Nothing like the industry has ever seen in terms of the content, in terms of the user interface, uh, in terms of all of the product enhancements and of course in terms of the spending so i have to say that this disney plus is really a game changer unprecedented in terms of the impact that we expect it to have now that being said netflix um, i believe is going to be one of the ultimate winners because this is a secular trend that we're seeing migrating from traditional to li- uh, from linear to internet television right. i believe disney and netflix would be among the beneficiaries so our, our summation here is basically mickey mouse fantasia style waved away the first mover advantage but Netflix is still in the right segment at the right time and can still be a winner here. Especially on the international side. We're seeing more of the international story for Netflix play out where we're seeing the deceleration in the U.S. partly as a result of Disney+. Plus. Super quickly, we've just lost a bit of ground. I think we're down half a percent here now in uh, in Disney. Your 12-month price target, $160. So a bit of room for upside here. Indeed. I I think Disney right now is trading a huge valuation on any kind of metric, whether it's cash flow or earnings. And I think that premium is really justified based on the transition that they're seeing, that are making from, uh, you know, traditional to uh, direct-to-consumer. And that really deserves a huge, huge premium for investors. Fantastic to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tuna Roby there, media entertainment analyst for CFRA Research. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but coming up, a feud well and truly on full display. The U.S. House Speaker tearing up the President's speech, calling it a manifesto of mistruths. But was it? More on the dramatic moments from last night's State of the Union address right after this. Stay with CNN.
Welcome back to First Move. The feud between President Trump and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi well and truly on show at last night's State of the Union speech. The House Speaker broke congressional tradition when she introduced the president. Then he seemingly ignored her handshake offer. And then right after his speech ended, she ripped apart a copy of his remarks. The president, meanwhile, focusing on the U.S. economy in particular during his address. Since my election, we have created 7 million new jobs, 5 million more than government experts projected during the previous administration. The USMCA will create nearly 100,000 new high-paying American auto jobs and massively boost exports for our farmers, ranchers, and factory workers. Chen joins us now. He's director of domestic policy studies at Stanford University and a former policy advisor for Mitt Romney. Lundy, great to have you on the show. We can talk about the drama, perhaps no surprise in light of the backdrop here with impeachment. But what did you make of the president's speech here? How well did he lay a path here to the November elections? Well, I think the president did exactly what he needed to do last night uh, if the goal was to speak to his electoral base. Uh, I think that the speech was squarely aimed at that base. If you look at the themes in the speech, the economy, immigration, uh, talking about cultural issues here in the United States, those are the kinds of things that the president needed to do to really gin up that base. And I thought as a speech speaking to that base, it was highly effective. Now, obviously, those who disagree with the president will find a lot in the speech to disagree with. But as a campaign speech, as a kickoff, as it were, for his reelection, uh, I think the speech hit all the right notes. Yeah, I mean, the economy clearly a, a point of strength. And we know, and we've talked a lot on this show about how important the unemployment rate in particular is for a, for a president going in for re-election here. But I, I just want to play some of the talk that he made about health care, because this is also incredibly important for both sides here. But as we work to improve Americans' health care, there are those who want to take away your health care, take away your doctor, and abolish private insurance entirely. Lani, this is clearly very personal for Nancy Pelosi, for the Democrats here. It's a, a bone of contention, clearly, among the Republicans, too. But also, I think, pivotal running into these elections and beyond. What did you make of what he said? And can you compare and contrast with what some of the Democratic nominees, candidates, are basically saying about health care, too? Well, you're absolutely right. Healthcare is going to be one of the top, if not the top issues in this fall's campaign. Here in the U.S., this has been a big point of contrast between the Democrats and the Republicans, what they want to do on health care. Now, it's interesting. The president is really setting this up in his broader socialism versus capitalism theme because you see a lot of Democrats, particularly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who have embraced fundamental changes to the U.S. health care system, so-called Medicare for all or single payer systems. You have other Democrats like Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Mike Bloomberg. They're proposing um, what might be considered more moderate 
public option or adding a government-run backstop-type plan. And that's in contrast to where President Trump has been. President Trump has really been about taking the current system and trying to inject more choice and competition, but really not making any fundamental changes. So this is going to be a big issue. You may recall when we had midterm congressional elections here in 2018, health care was the single biggest issue that catapulted Democrats to victories in many congressional districts and states. So this contrast between the Democrats and the Republicans on health care is going to be the basic, most fundamental one, I think, as we head toward the November election. Yeah, and it's not even just about Republicans versus Democrats on this, to your point as well, because I know you've done the analysis and it was eye-opening for me. For those candidates that voters or the candidates themselves believe are relatively centrist here, be it a Bloomberg, be it a Biden, be it a Buttigieg, if they don't want to significantly ramp up the deficit here, it's going to mean tax hikes to fulfill their plans and not just tax hikes on the wealthy, but also tax hikes on the middle class. Can you give us a sense of the numbers here? Because for me, this was a wowzer when I read your report. Yeah. Well, it, it was, a, it was a, a wow kind of moment when we studied the fiscal and tax implications of the public option proposals, the ones that have been painted as the more moderate proposals, Julia, frankly. If you look at those proposals, what you find is that over 10 years, the government here in the U.S. has to spend about $700 billion to facilitate that plan. Over a 30-year period, the public option becomes the third most expensive U.S. government program behind Medicare and Social Security. And in order to to keep the deficit down, what has to happen is you have to see tax increases, either the imposition of a new 4.8% uh, payroll tax or in the alternative, big hikes on the marginal income tax rates of all Americans. So this is something I think the Democrats are eventually going to have to confront, which is even with a public option style proposal, how do you pay for it? Maybe the answer is you don't. That seems to be the thing that's in vogue in the U.S. these days, just create programs and not pay for them. But if you want to address the deficit implications, it's going to be massive. Yeah, I see a potential avenue here for President Trump to be calling those that believe they're centrists socialist and communist based on plans for health care alone here, quite frankly. But Lania, I do want to get your views on Iowa. Winners and losers here. Who do you see as the big winners here? Is it Buttigieg and perhaps President Trump and the losers Biden, even with partial results here? Yeah, I see, I see three winners. One is Pete Buttigieg, obviously, because he was able to actually win the Iowa caucuses and demonstrate that viability. And, you know, the, the Democrats have traditionally tried to pick candidates uh, who kind of make them swoon. You think back to Barack Obama performing well in the Iowa caucuses in 2008 during his first campaign. Pete Buttigieg, I think, demonstrated that he can be a strong candidate. Now, we'll see if he's able to carry that on to more diverse states. Iowa is predominantly white. Buttigieg has done well with that audience. We'll see if that continues. The second winner, obviously, Donald Trump, because of all of the challenges in getting the Iowa caucus numbers out, uh, makes the Democrats look a little incompetent, quite frankly. I think Donald Trump benefits from that. And the third person, I'd argue, Julia, that benefits is, uh, is Michael Bloomberg, because he was able to avoid Iowa, avoid that uh, sort of morass that it became, and instead really focus on trying to consolidate that moderate vote down the road. We'll see if it works for him. But so far, his strategy seems to be paying off. Yeah, I knew I missed a B in there. Thank you so much, Lanny. Great to get your wisdom. And we'll, we'll get you back. There's going to be plenty more to discuss over the coming months. Lanny Chen there. Thank you so much once again.
All right, we're going to take a break, but up next, there's companies from Apple to McDonald's count the cost of the coronavirus. We'll take a look at some of the bottom lines. Stay with us. first move companies around the world counting the potential cost of the coronavirus to their businesses over the past 24 hours Carmichael Hyundai stopped production lines in South Korea the Hong Kong airline Cafe Pacific has asked staff to take unpaid leave and the company that owns Versace and other luxury brands has also issued a profit warning Claire Sebastian joins us now Claire I mean we've heard from numerous companies Apple another one of course impacted here just talk us through what some of these companies are saying yeah, Julia, it started off, you know, when this outbreak started, that they were saying, let's wait and see. We don't know. It's all very uncertain. Now it seems to be getting real. The phrase we're hearing from several companies is material impact. That includes Capri Holdings, which owns Versace, Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors. China is a huge market for them. They have now said uh, that they uh, expect a $100 million hit uh, to revenues for the fiscal 2020 year, which ends in March. They say that 150 of their 225 stores in China remain closed. That 200 25, by the way, is about 17% of their global store base. So China is a huge market. Of course, of course, the Lunar New Year uh, extended holiday and the fact that people weren't traveling really hit traffic uh, at those stores. And another company that's using the phrase uh, material impact today is Nike. They uh, are saying they're warning investors that when they report their next uh, earnings, uh, they will see a material impact uh, to operations in China. They say about half of their stores uh, remain closed. And this, of course, uh, a huge market for them as well. China uh, was about 18% of sales in the last quarter. It's by far their fastest growing region. And what they haven't mentioned, Julia, uh, which is another thing that could hit multiple companies, is the fact that they also produce a, a lot of what they sell in China. So that could be a, a double whammy for them. So that's what we're seeing in terms of consumption, demand, traffic issues for companies. Yeah, you raise a great point. There's, there's a double whammy here. It's not just about potential consumption hit here if people simply aren't going out and shopping but it's also workers labor shortages i mean i mentioned apple the nikkei asian review saying actually or at least reporting potential labor shortages for apple it's it's balancing the two things here Right. Uh, and, you know, personnel is a big issue as we look at these supply chain impacts, which which are sort of mounting up. Hyundai, the South Korean car maker, says, uh, as you said, that they are suspending production lines in South Korea. That happened very quickly, Julia, after the end uh, of this planned, although extended Lunar New Year holiday. So you can see that the impact is being felt very quickly. Airbus have also said that they are extending the closure of their uh, final assembly plant in Tianjin. Apple, another one which manufactures a lot uh, of, of its products, particularly the iPhone in China, they have already closed their 42 stores. And then we get into the travel industry, which is, of course, the sharp edge of all of this. Cathay Pacific taking a very serious move uh, when they are asking employees to take three weeks of unpaid leave. They have already cut uh, their flights to China by 90 percent. Uh, that, that cuts into their, their overall flights by about 30 percent. Don't forget, they are also already suffering from the impacts of the protests in Hong Kong last year. So a double whammy for them. Uh, so some very serious measures being taken by big, big multinational companies, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's perhaps better than losing your job, but how can anyone live with uh, without three weeks of pay? Terrible. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that update there.
All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief too. U.S. retail giant Macy's says it's closing 125 stores, nearly one-fifth of its network over the next three years. 2,000 staff will lose their job as a result. U.S. department stores have been battered by the growth of Amazon, with Macy's rival Sears going bust in 2018. Online mattress seller Casper's Sleep has slashed its target IPO price. Originally, shares were set at a price range of $17 to $19, but that was lowered to just 12 to 13 That would value the company at just half a billion dollars, well below what it said it was worth last week. The startup is expected to begin trading on Thursday. Tesla CEO Elon Musk skipped the boardroom and asked his Twitter followers if the electric car maker should build a new gigafactory in Texas. He gave two options, hell yeah and nope. More than 150,000 users voted, with a whopping 80% in favor of the new factory. Tesla just opened a gigafactory in China and announced plans for a new one in Europe. All right, that just about wraps up the show. Time for me to start. Masha, oh, great. Yes, here we go. Yes, more. Here we go. Yes. They're all my notes, by the way. All my notes. You want your personal. Time to go make yours. See you tomorrow. Naughty. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.